So I want to kind of uh, talk about something that God laid on my heart first um, in the description of this video. There's going to be a link to my YouTube channel. Um, I would appreciate it if anybody wants to check it out and let me know what you guys think. There's some content there. Um, basically, what, what God laid on my heart is uh, a lot of times we struggle with our identities what we see ourselves as or what other people see us as we kind of have this dilemma of a lot of people say that they want to find themselves or find who they are and before i became a christian i don't know that i had that same question i kind of already knew who i was I may have looked different, I may have acted different, and I may have sounded different at different times in my life, but I've always been uh, pretty consistently aware of who I was. There were some things that I didn't quite know, and one of the main questions that I, I kind of had is one that Paul uh, asks in a much better way than I ever could in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself, that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Basically, Paul is saying that we all know what's good. We know goodness just because it is what it is. We know the law, whether we follow it or not. We know what's right from wrong, even from a young age. Even without being taught certain things, we know that certain things are wrong. And at the same time, we know that certain things are right. And basically, in this, I, I called this sermon identity theft. I wasn't sure if I was going to call it identity theft or identity crisis. But I think identity theft looks good, and I think it makes this a pretty decent segue, is... In this book, in this chapter, Paul draws us to a problem. He not only answers this here, but he answers it in the long run. Like, where does this all start? A lot of times, if uh, you're a, a cybersecurity person, what you do if if you're the somebody's a victim of identity theft, they can trace it back to the IP address. And Paul here is kind of like tracing our sin back to its IP address. IP address stands for Internet Protocol in the computer world, but uh, right here, IP can stand for identity problem. And where he points it, he traces it back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And this really makes sense because when we look at it, we see where... 
they first fall victim. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Basically, just to kind of give an outline, two chapters back from here, if we look at it, God is creating everything from nothing. God, in his uh, trinity, is creating everything, including people. And one of the things that he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The way that this is written was a way that the Hebrew people used to memorize verses, to memorize things. So this is important in the context of the overall history of the Bible. And it's written down in a way that people will remember it. So it's important to know that God created us in his image in chapter 1. And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve are being tempted by the serpent by him saying they will be like God. When you're made in the image of something, you are made like something. We are not God, but we are made in his likeness. Adam and Eve were made in his likeness, but Satan told them that they could be in the likeness of God if they just ate from that fruit. Now, the devil does this all throughout history. He tries to take our identity and have us put it in something else, usually a perverted form of what we already know to be true about ourselves. St. Augustine, in his book, The Confessions, he lays this out in a much more profound way, and I'm actually going to read it verbatim because it's I don't want to mince his words. I would rather them be said the way that he says them. He says, For in vice lurks a counterfeit beauty. Pride, for instance, even pride apes sublimity. Whereas you are the only God, most high above all things. As for ambition, what does it crave but honors and glory, while you are worthy of honor beyond all others, and eternally glorious? The ferocity of power, powerful men aims to inspire fear. But who is to be feared except the one God? Can anything be snatched from this power or withdrawn from it? When or where or whither or by whom? Flirtatiousness aims to arouse love by its charming wiles, but nothing can hold more charm than your charity. Nor could anything be loved to greater profit than your truth, which outshines all else in its luminous beauty. Curiosity poses as pursuit of knowledge, whereas you know everything to a supreme degree. Even ignorance or stupidity masquerades as simplicity and innocence, but nothing that exists is simpler than yourself. And what could be more innocent than you? Who leave the wicked to be hounded by their own sins? Sloth pretends to aspire to rest, but what sure rest is there save the Lord? Lush living likes to be taken for contented abundance, but you are the full and inexhaustible store of sweetness that never grows stale. Extravagance is a bogus generosity, but you are the infinitely wealthy giver of all good things. Avarice strives to amass 
possessions, but you own everything. Envy is contentious over rank accorded to another, but what ranks higher than you? Anger seeks revenge, but whoever exacts revenge with greater justice than yourself. Timidity dreads any unforeseen or sudden threat, but what is sudden or unforeseen to you? Who can separate what you love from you? Where is ultimate security to be found except in you? Sadness pines at the loss of the good things with which the greed took its pleasure, because it wants to be like you. From what nothing can be taken, from whom nothing can be taken away. A soul that turns away from you therefore lapses into fornication. When it seeks apart from you what it can never find in pure and limpid form except by returning to you, all those who wander far away and set themselves up against you are imitating you, but in a perverse way. Yet by this very mimicry they proclaim that you are the creator of the whole of nature, and in consequence there is no place wherever that we can hide from your presence. St. Augustine is saying that every sin is just a lack of our understanding of who we are as God's children. What he's saying is that we, tr we know so well in ourselves that God is the creator and sustainer of all things that we are still falling for this trick that the serpent tricked Adam and Eve with in the garden, trying to make us earn what we've already got. They said we can be like gods, knowing good and evil. We know good and evil. We can attain these things that God has given us by if we just work hard, if we just do this, if we just do that. But God says we've already gotten those things. If we trust in him, if we follow him, and if we accept his son, Jesus Christ, we already have all of the benefits that we're seeking to earn on our own. A lot of times we try to earn that. We try to do the best. We try to be the best. We try to build on what God has already provided for us. And this temptation is drawn out all through St. Augustine. He says that all sin is attributed to this lack of understanding of our identity in Christ. That all of us strives, whether we know it or not, to proclaim that God is who he says he is. We try to live it out as though we are able to attain a, a seat on his throne, when in all actuality, he said that we have the keys to the kingdom if we trust in his son, Jesus Christ. He opens the doors for us to enter into that rest, to enter into that uh, relationship with him that he set he set it out before us. We haven't had to do any of the work. Christ did the work for us. But it's sometimes easier for us, I think, to feel like we merit it, that we earned it. Sometimes we would rather do the work so that we can say that we've done it rather than accept that it's already been done for us so that we, can, we can't take the credit. And all throughout the book of Romans and other books of Paul, he states that we need to stop putting our identity in what we do and keep our identity in who, whose we are. We belong to God. We're his creation. We're not his creators. We're not his... Uh, we don't choose where he resides. We're not 
we don't get to put him in a box. We don't get to decide who or what he is. He is who he is. That's what he says in the Bible. That's what he told Moses his name was because there was a time back in early Judaism where it just in ancient culture in general, to say the name of something gave you power over the thing itself. So if you were to say somebody's name, you hold power over that person. Jesus makes a reference to this when he names, he tells the demons that he looses from the the people to tell them his name, to tell them their names, because that gives him power over those demons. But God doesn't allow us to have that power over him. God doesn't allow us to use his name to claim power over him. It's, it's impossible, even though we try to do that ourselves. And in one of the most notable things is uh, Satan tries to tempt Jesus in the same way. It talks about, um, this is kind of fitting with it being uh, Lent. Jesus is tested in the wilderness after he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you were the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you were the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him very high to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. And what's interesting about this is just before that, God, Jesus was baptized. And God said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus already knew his identity rested in his father. He knew he was the Messiah without all these things, but what Satan was giving him was the temptation to earn it himself. Jesus already knew who he was. His father said that he was his son and he was well pleased with him. Jesus knew his identity was the Messiah, but Satan wanted to give him the opportunity to try to earn it himself. Jesus knew that the way to reach the nations was not just by bowing down to Satan and taking charge. He knew that the only way to reach the nations was to do what his father said. He knew that if he listened to the word of God, he would be satisfied. If he trusted his father, he knew that he would be provided for. He knew that if he was in danger and God's plan for him was to fall down that mountain, regardless of what he felt inside, he trusted his father with his well-being. Satan used similar temptations that he used for 
other people in the Bible, other faithful members of God's flock. He wants us to feel like we're not secure enough in God. He wants us to feel like we won't be able to attain the holiness that God has. So just settle for something less. He wants us always to settle for something less because we can earn that ourselves. If you want power, you can have power. You have to work for it. You have to strive for it. You have to step on everybody on your way up. And once you finally have that place, you'll be happy. Satan always says you'll be happy once you reach that place. But I have learned through my life that it is not in my successes that I ever learn anything. It's more in the times that I fail, when I fall short of the glory of God, that I realize that that's when his work is working in me. When I give myself to God, I'm usually coming to him. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Four Loves, when, when we come to God, it's usually when we are least like him. In our humility, in our sadness, usually when we come to God, we are showing the absolute opposite of what we think of God as our brokenness, our humility, our embarrassment, our sorrow, all these things that are low in our, um, our minds are when we're the closest to God. So when I'm thinking of what makes me a good Christian, the times that I'm the best, as far as what Jesus says, is when I'm on my knees crying. The times I'm closest to God is when I'm furthest away from Him. When I'm looking at myself and I know how sinful I am. When I'm looking at myself and I know how broken I am. Those are the times when I cry out to God. Not the times when I'm on top of the mountain. Not the times when I feel like I've attained something on my own merit. Not the times when I have all this power that I feel like I have. It's the times when I feel like I have nothing to offer God that I offer him the most. It's the times when I feel like I'm lost that I know that God is the place that I can come to. So when we're broken, we are actually closer to God than when we're all put together, when we've got it all figured out. So Satan tries to trick us into earning this position of power, this position of joy, this position of the, the things that he offers aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but the striving and the searching and the seeking to attain them is what is what kills us. Jesus makes this statement pretty clear when he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were pretty much the highest level of Jewish authority during that time. They were considered perfect by most people. They they did all the right things. They knew all the right words. They said all the right things. But Jesus had a lot different of a story to say about them. In Matthew 23, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teacher of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. 
but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi if you have one teacher and you are, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father. He is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, and you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous and you say if we had lived in the days of our ancestors we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started you snakes you brood of vipers how will you escape being condemned to hell therefore i am sending you prophets and sages and teachers some of them you will kill and crucify others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus paints a pretty big picture about 
this kind of identity crisis that we have. These people were following the law. They were doing the things that God said were right. They were taking the law piece by piece, following it to the T. Everybody knew who they were because they were walking around. They had the appearance of people who were fasting. They looked like people who were doing what God wanted them to do. They were like the perfect people. It was like uh, like the people that you see in church these days that make it seem like they have it all together, that they've got it all. They have money. They have power. They have prestige. All of these are blessings from God, but on the inside, they're dead. On the inside, they're tombs. On the inside, they're not doing these things because they want God to bless them. They're not doing these things because they want to do the will of God. They're doing these things because they want people to notice that they're doing these things. And that, Jesus says, is their only reward. That is what they earn. People look at them. People think they're nice and neat. But at the end of the day, it's not what the outside looks like that God judges. It's the inside. God doesn't care if we're wearing a $1,000 suit or a t-shirt and jeans. God doesn't care what we look like on the outside, where we come from. All he cares about is where our hearts are aligned to. If we are holding up our end by showing the world that we are made in the image of God, if we're taking the identity of God's children, doing what that consists of, which instead of trying to earn these things on our own, instead of trying to work to attain these things, trying to do what the law says, trying to do what all these things were. Paul says that he never would have even thought to covet if he didn't hear the law said not to. A lot of times we do the wrong things just because it's wrong. Sometimes we do the wrong things just because we heard about it and we, we want to be like God. So we want to know good and evil. And the only way to know good and evil is to do both. But if we follow what God tells us to do, if we listen to his word, if we do the things that he calls us to do, which should come naturally in our hearts, we will be before God as these people were before men. We may not earn any accolades or anything on this earth. We may not impress anybody with our clothing or our material things or Nobody may ever know really what our hearts are on this earth, but God knows. And that's what God rewards. God rewards what we do in secret. God rewards what we do in his presence when nobody else is looking, when nobody else is paying attention. People who live their lives in a godly way aren't recognized all the time for doing that. Sometimes it's just somebody that you come into contact with that you just know knows God. Sometimes it's just a small word somebody says that changes your whole life because they're doing what God called them to do. There are going to be people in this world that 
you can see that they may have it all put together. They may be painted the right way. They may be carrying themselves the right way. They may look the right way. They might say all the right things. But they may be completely dead inside. They may have no clue who God is. They may just be trying to find whatever they can do the easiest to make the most people like them. Anybody who's ever turned on a Christian TV station has seen this, I'm sure. Where you know they're saying all the right words, they have all the right people there, they're influencing the world, but every single person that's there, maybe not every single person, but a lot of those people that are there might be just as dead as that person is too. They might be looking for God, just doing it in the wrong way. They might be seeking God, but only finding it in this counterfeit. Instead of trying to do what we can do on our own, we should be asking what, what God can do through us. The only power I ever have is the power that God allows me to have. And usually that's only through submission to him. I can only get the things in my life that are the good things of God when I give myself up. I can't have eternal life unless I die. I can't have, I can't walk by the spirit unless I kill my flesh. I can't give myself to Christ and be who he called me to be until I give myself up completely. If I only give him a piece or I only give him what this counterfeit me that I try to present to the world, if I just take what is what the world sees and give that to God, I'm not giving him my full self. I'm not giving him my anxieties. I'm not giving him my fears. I'm not giving him my sins. I'm not giving him the things that are tearing my heart apart, the thoughts that go through my mind, the things I think about in between prayers to God. Those are the things God wants. Those are the thing God, things God wants to change. Those are the things that God can turn into his glory. And if I keep those from him, if I try to keep a secret place in my mind or a secret place in my heart where I'm going to keep the things that I want, keep the things that are keeping me from God, that's where we mess up. If we try to hold on to even a piece of ourselves, that's a part that God can't heal. That's a part that God can't save. That's a part that God can't bring to his will. And I want to give my whole self to God because God doesn't leave those spaces empty. What we give to God, he fills with something else. He fills with the spirit. He fills with his love. He fills with compassion. He fills with the fruits that he wants us all to bear as his children. If you want to earn these things, if you want people to know that you're a child of God, if you want people to know that you've been in his presence, you have to sit in his presence. You have to do the things that he says by submitting to him, accepting his son, Jesus Christ, and giving him the broken parts. And it's hard. Sometimes it's easy to just 
brush some stuff under the rug. It's easy just to shove some things to the side. It's easy to just pretend that we have it all together instead of breaking down and giving it to God in the first place. If there's anybody out there that feels like they have to have it all together, if they have to, that they have to look a certain way, that they have to carry themselves a certain way in order to be in the will of God, I want to pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, anybody that's watching this, anybody that can hear my voice, God, let them know your love. Let them feel your spirit and your presence, God. Let them know that those broken pieces of them can be made whole if they place them in your hands. That anything that we give to you, not only do you multiply, sometimes by breaking it, but you make it even better than it was before. I thank you, God, for being able to hold our hearts in your hands and to make them into something else other than dust. I thank you for being able to take our lives and mold them to be done in the way that you want them to be done. I thank you, God, for, for loving us the way that you do and for allowing us to be able to know what's right. I thank you for everything. And if there's anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, help them to know you today. Help them to know you in a way that they've never known you before. Help them to feel you in a, a way that is more real to them than they've ever felt, God. I thank you so much. I love you and praise you. And it's in your holy son's name, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.